From WOUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Connor Keurig. And I'm Beth Greenman. Welcome back. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. This week on the show, one of our reporters raises some questions about something so ingrained in our everyday lives, you might have never thought anything of it. Small talk. It is polite to be honest. And while we say we value honesty, and there's research to show this, the truth is, is that withholding things or avoiding topics and sometimes even being deceptive is functional. I can't always be honest with you. At least we don't feel that way because it could be hurtful. Our reporters will also tell you about how one group at a high university is trying to help younger children in Athens County, as well as a local exhibit featuring people from the LGBT community. We'll give you all the details and more coming up right here on The Outlet. Ohio University students frequently volunteer their time to support children in the city of Athens, and it's rarely extended to more rural towns nearby. But as the outlet's Caitlin Coolidge tells us, one group is reaching out to the more forgotten children of Athens County. Evan Streeter is helping five-year-old Lyndon build a flashlight. There are popsicle sticks, tin foil, batteries, and rubber bands spread out across a small table inside Chansey Public Library. Lyndon was having some trouble folding the tin foil needed. So Evan is rolling it up to make a wire. Eight Chansey students, ranging in ages from 5 to 13, are accompanied by four Ohio University students. They're gathered at a table in the center of the library. The OU crowd is part of an organization called Renaissance Engineers. It consists of engineering majors who want to use their science, math, and engineering skills to give back to the community. Evan is the president of Renaissance Engineers. He says the group wanted to reach out to the kids in Chansey because they don't receive as much support and attention from the university as children who live within the Athens city limits. The children just don't get near as much attention, they don't get as much exposure to things such as engineering and math and science and we were looking to give them that opportunity by taking the project such as the Build Your Own Flashlight project to them uh, to give them that exposure. Chansey librarian Adrian Wolf says the Chansey Library is always looking for more student volunteers from Ohio University to put on events because they provide a safe and educational environment for children to attend to after school. People, particularly university students, um, you know, they just they're 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 in Athens, and that that location is more convenient. It's what they know, but there's all these other branches um, that need you know people to volunteer to come and be active, or to get engaged with the students, or whatever kids are here. About 60% of the students in the Athens school system live outside the Athens city limits, and many in Chansey are living at or below the poverty line. Wolf says. If it wasn't for the library, kids in Chansey wouldn't have access to the internet, books, or simply a safe place to hang out with their friends. There's not a lot going on in this town. There's like two gas stations maybe, and the library, and that's about it. Um, so the library is a good place for everybody, 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 but particularly kids who are school age, you know, elementary school age. Back at the flashlight station, Lyndon seems skeptical. She's not quite sure if this homemade flashlight will work. 
Evan flips on the flashlight, and Lyndon breaks into a smile. Yeah, there you go. Flip out your flashlight doesn't work. <laughs> there you go. So now you have a switch. She takes the light herself and tries it out. Soon, the entire library is twinkling with small flashes of light as the kids show off their flashlights to one another. In addition to exposing these rural students like Lyndon to more math and science, Ohio University students are also helping them build self-confidence and valuable life skills, despite their socioeconomic backgrounds and geographic locations. For The Outlet, I'm Caitlin Coolidge. Small talk is something so present in our everyday lives, and yet no one really questions it. Asking the cashier at the grocery store or a random colleague how they are doing is normal. But why is that our favorite small talk question? Outlet reporter Lauren Ramoser did some research. Hey, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. Good. Most daily small talk in America starts with that small piece of dialogue. The person answering with the response, good, is doing so to be polite, but that doesn't mean they're being honest. In my home country, Germany, small talk conversations are different. Germans follow the rule, if I'm not interested in the answer, I won't ask the question. That means we make small talk, we only ask questions that are appropriate to the situation, time and person. How may I help you would be appropriate in a grocery store. When meeting a professor, a question concerning class is appropriate. But if you're just passing someone in the street, a friendly smile or a hello is just fine. But in the US, I've noticed no matter where you are or who you are interacting with, small talk often starts with a question, how are you doing? And according to Ohio University health communications professor Cherry Thompson, actually answering it honestly isn't something Americans do. We know that it's so um, ingrained in our culture and expected that sometimes our expectations are violated or we're surprised if I were to ask you, how are you doing? And you say, actually, today's been terrible. I got a flat tire, I spilled coffee on myself, and I failed an exam. The other person would be like, oh, you were just supposed to say, good, how are you? So I can say, good, and then we can sort of go. The difference between honesty and politeness is the key to understanding the function of this dialogue, according to Thompson. Even if a question is being asked, more often than not, the answer is more of a response to acknowledge the question rather than a real answer. In other words, in America, most people will answer the question to be polite, but it doesn't mean they answer it honestly. That feels weird to me because in Germany it is considered polite to be honest. Even though there are differences in what it means to have polite small talk, it actually is an important first step in building connections with each other, according to Thompson. I would define then small talk as um, conversation that's intended to be polite, that's about uncontroversial, safe um, topics. And that's yes. how I would define it. It's usually at the beginning of a conversation and often with people we don't know very well. It's more than likely that every relationship we have started with small talk. Thompson explains that it is an experiment to see if we have things in common with other people. Small talk is like a safe zone, when nobody needs to invest much, but can test whether or not they have sympathy toward the other person. And language itself can shape how we conduct small talk. For example, German has different forms to address people, depending on whether you know them personally or not. So there's a stronger hierarchy and a distance between people who have never met before 
or between you and your boss or you and your parents-in-law on a first meeting. But Thompson says English is different. In the English language, in particular how we use it here in the States, there's only one form of everything. If I talk to you or I talk to my grandmother or I talk to my boss or I talk to um, um, the president, I would ask every one of them, how are you doing? Right? It's you. There's only one you. So we tend to have a more um, flat, like there isn't a hierarchy of language or, or different forms of talking to people. For me, this flat hierarchy creating a link to the rather informal yet also personal question, how are you, leaves me in a dilemma. I want to be polite, yet I'm still very German and want to answer it honestly. So when, say, the cashier at a grocery store asks me how I'm doing, for me it's a very intimate question and I want to answer it honestly. But giving her an honest answer about my feelings is pointless because the cashier doesn't want to hear it anyway. The American understanding who we are honest with is different compared to Germany. It is polite to be honest. And while we say we value honesty, and there's research to show this, we say this about our relationships. Oh, my best friend, I can, I can tell her anything, right? Or I expect my romantic partner to tell me anything. No secrets. The truth is, is that withholding things or avoiding topics and sometimes even being deceptive is functional. Right? I can't always be honest with you. At least we don't feel that way because it could be hurtful. Smalltalk's function is to open up a conversation, but how are you might not always be the best choice. I said to make Smalltalk better, you might want to um, practice asking more open-ended questions. Because I think one thing we fail at will say, how are you doing good? How are you doing good? We don't say like, well, what do you mean by good? Or are you having a good day? The answer is yes or no. Living in a foreign culture oftentimes reveals the small differences you probably weren't aware of, but it can help to focus on what is important to you. Authenticity is still important to me, but I have learned to enjoy more small talk conversations and more interaction with the people around me. For the outlet, I'm Lauren Ramosa. We were really interested in hearing more about this topic of small talk, something that's like second nature for a lot of us. Our managing editor, Abby Grise, sat down with Lauren to discuss. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Lauren Ramoser, um, one of our reporters. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Abby. Okay, so you did this whole story on small talk, and you are from, or sorry, tell us where you're from. I'm from Germany. I'm a student from the University of Leipzig, and there's big cooperation between OU and Leipzig, so it's easy for me to come over and explore this new culture. And you have been here since the start of the semester or summer? That's right, since the end of August, and I'm going to stay for a year. Okay, great. Yeah, Lauren basically noticed this thing that has kind of blown our minds here that, you know, Americans use small talk in a lot of their daily conversations, and apparently Germany isn't really like that, correct? That's right. We use small talk as well, so that's a kind of thing that is probably in every language, um, but we use it differently, um, especially when it comes to the function of small talk. Germans, I would say... Um, do not have to desire to fill silence with something meaningless. But uh, what I'm talking about in my uh, story for the outlet this week is um, basically the question, how are you doing, and the answer, good. That's something we would feel as very intimate, so we're not asking us somebody we don't really know. What is small talk like in German? Like, what would you ask somebody? 
Um, that depends on the situation. So when I'm talking to my friends, just to start a conversation when we first meet on the day, um, I would ask something um, appropriate for the situation. So how has your day been so far? Or um, what are you doing today? Something like that. But when I'm meeting a professor on the street somewhere, I would never ever ask him, how are you doing? Because he would feel to be honest and we're not that personal with each other. So I would rather say, I really liked your class today or I'm struggling with the homework or simply just smile or say hi. That would be fine. We don't need to ask a question. I see you, I greet you, I smile, something like that. That's fine. So it seems like with the language itself that there's a bit it's a bit more formal. Right. There are other languages that work the same, for example, French, but German has a different form but you. I, if we don't know each other, the first time I would use this other form, which is way more polite. And um, it's hard to explain because there's no such thing in English. But um, for person you, people you don't know, for um, people who, have, who are higher than you in hierarchy, older people, like there are different codes where you have to use this other form and uh, it makes it less personal. And then in every relationship, there has to be that moment where the higher person has to say, has to offer you as the form to use from that point on. Oh, that's so, so interesting. That's, that's for part of our small talk and it's very important. But there are people like your boss, for example, who will never say that. You will never use you. It's simply not going to happen. So then with sort of the editing process and going through everything, um, at one point you had said that in German you wouldn't say you're, you're good, like you're doing good. You would say you're just doing okay. Right. So what, it, what is that about? Why? I think one of the biggest stereotypes we have, like Germans have, um, on Americans is that you guys are always very positive and energetic <laughs> and you're, you're good and we probably wouldn't say that's very authentic, mm. meaning that we are more realistic, it, to put it in a nice way. So yeah. we're rather doing okay. And we partly say that because that's true. You're most of the time not just very good all the time. You have your ups and downs. And the other half is saying okay uh, gives the other person the feeling that he or she is okay too. That like when I say, oh, I have this great day, the other one is maybe feeling bad because his day isn't as good. Yeah. So it's more of communicating on the same level with that person. So then you also told us that you've sold this to German media or offered it to them, basically? Yeah. And I'm here to work as a journalist, and my topics are very easy to find because I can simply detect differences in German and American cultures and make it a story because it's interesting for both. You know, okay. as you're, you just said, it's very interesting because it's new to you. And uh, that works the other way around as well. So I contact German medias, mostly newspapers, and say, hey, I found this out. And I guess this is special about Germany or special about Germany in comparison to other countries. And they were really interested in, in it. Because um, small talk, like all languages, is underlying changes all the time. And uh, we live in a globalized world, and English is our second not officially, but everyone in Germany learns English. Mm. So we um, kind of mix it. And there are more people by now using forms like, hey, how are you? Oh, good. And this is not something that is really um, based in our culture and our language. Right. But it happens more and more often. So it's 
kind of important to detect these changes just to like make your thoughts about it. Do I like it? Does that feel right to me? Is that something we used to do? Is it maybe a good change that can be too? So they were very interested in that and featured it online and in some other publications as well. That's great. That's super exciting. Yeah. Um, okay, well, thank you so much for bringing this topic to our attention. It's been super interesting, as I said. Um, and yeah, best of luck with the rest of your year. Thank you. October was LGBT History Month. And in honor of that, the Southeast Ohio History Center had an exhibit on the history of the LGBT community in Southeast Ohio. With more on the story, here is the outlet's Beth Greenman. Athens, um, Cambridge, Zanesville, Coshocton, uh, Fort Smith. And the Southeast Ohio History Center is filled with people. They're walking around, mingling, and looking at artifacts lined up in glass cases along the wall. There are old newspaper clippings yellowing with age, as well as pride flags and advertisements, and even a letter from former President Barack Obama. The occasion is a happy hour co-hosted by the Southeast Ohio LGBT Coalition. Becky Shawuski collaborated with Galician to create the exhibit. She is a graduate student at Ohio University, getting her MFA in painting and drawing. She is working on her thesis this year, which involves bringing more visibility to the history of the LGBT community in Athens. The collaboration for this exhibit, therefore, happened naturally, and she found many of the artifacts through her research. The LGBT center on campus has a kind of a ton of material, <coughs> uh, historical material, newspaper clippings, um, photographs, advertisements, promotional material since the 70s that has been collected but just has been sitting in a file cabinet, basically. This is the first time the center is loaning out the items to another group. The exhibit itself is about the history of the LGBT community in Southeast Ohio. Southeast Ohio LGBT Coalition Communications Director Douglas Robinson says the philosophy behind the exhibit is based on the idea that to achieve progress, you have to know the past. To kind of show the history of LGBTQ plus I individuals in the area in southeastern Ohio, um, to show where we're coming from, because um, in the LGBT community, we often say, you know, we don't know where we're going until you know where you're coming from. LGBT history is not often taught in school, and Douglas believes this exhibit is filling that void for people. He emphasizes that LGBT history did not start with the Stonewall riots in 1969, but rather can be traced locally as well. A section of an OU 1970s yearbook declared the end of the local gay liberation movement with the exit of one of its leaders from Athens. In the 80s, a film was shown depicting a lesbian couple with a child, aimed at opening people's minds up to the idea. The first Open Doors meeting was held in 1997 at the United Campus Ministry. The Normal Heart was directed by an OU MFA student in 1999. The importance of um, preserving our LGBT history is that you know, we as a community don't really learn our history in school. So if we don't go out and seek it ourselves, no one necessarily educates us on it. And it's really important to learn, um, you know, the older terms that people used to use for LGBT um, and why some of those aren't appropriate anymore in addition to, you know, how we've evolved as a society or how the LGBT community has moved forward. Becky's favorite artifact from the exhibit is a letter from the late 70s showing the prejudice the community faced at the time. There's a letter that was written, 
I don't know the exact details of this, but I think wanting to advertise in a Marietta newspaper for something seemingly like reading it now seems pretty benign, but um, the letter asking for advertising space and then a return letter saying refusing that request because they would never publish anything that was advertising something that had to do with lesbian or gay interests. At the happy hour, people of all ages continue to mill around, discussing nomenclature used for the LGBT community over the years, as well as recent films. They bond over shared experiences, celebrating their identities in a communal space. Next to them are artifacts with slurs and an account of a man burning a pride flag. They read the articles and ads with drawn faces, reflecting on how far they have come and how far they still have to go. For The Outlet, I'm Beth Greenman. The majority of Ohio University's student population has traditionally been white. From 1976 to 2009, Caucasian students have made up anywhere between 85 to 89 percent of the student body. Yet, the network of African-American alumni at OU is recognized as one of the strongest networks at the institution and brings a lot of alumni back to campus. Our reporter David Lee looks into an establishment that has stood as a symbol, shelter, and reason this black community at OU continues to stay in touch with their past in Athens. Now, I need to tell you that this is a little dangerous down here because the floor is very soft, very weak because of the water damage that has gone on. This whole floor down here has to be replaced. Ron Luce walks me down to the basement of the Mount Zion Baptist Church. It's a hot, messy, dimly lit room. A piano is halfway sinking into the ground, and the walls are covered with chip paint and mold. Chip paint and mold also dominate the interior of the main sanctuary, and the dust and mold that is visible make it clear that there hasn't been a Sunday service held in a long time. Luce is a founding member of the Mount Zion Baptist Church Preservation Society. He and others are working hard to restore the building, a place that once served as a social and spiritual anchor for the black community in Athens, to its former glory. Even in the midst of this deterioration that is still very serene and very calming and very, very beautiful. In the 20s and 30s, hundreds of people filled the pews on Sundays. But by the mid-70s, attendance was not what it used to be. This group right here, yeah, that was the Gospel Voices. Uh, uh, they were the hub. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they were the pillar. Uh, uh, the church, when I first went there, there were five, uh, about... Uh, uh, six people there. Six people were there. Dr. Francine Childs became the first tenured African-American professor at OU when she came to Athens in 1974. She remembers how the church grew from a handful of students and townspeople on Sundays to more than 100 people meeting in the church throughout the week. I began to probably do what maybe wasn't common <laughs> to do from a professor to ask students about church and and could they sing and why don't we get a choir. Dr. Child started out by helping the church pay for utility costs. So I started paying the light bill so the kids could have a place to 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 go and rehearse and then they said uh, we were using up the gas so I paid the gas bill. As her influence became greater the congregation asked her to become the pastor of the church. Walter Moss was a founding member of the popular Gospel Voices of Faith Choir 
He talks about the significance of Dr. Child's leadership. She was like our mother, man. She loved us unconditionally, no matter what we were going through. So many, especially African-American students in the choir, you know, we looked to her. She was a, a spiritual mother to so many. For students like Moss, the church provided black students the freedom to congregate with each other. Dr. Child says the church provided much more than just a meeting place for students. There was no other place. There was no black-owned businesses, uh, any place uh, for them to have anything. The church has been the hub and the pillar of every uh, African-American black community uh, uh, throughout history. When people didn't have money to pay their bills, they came to the church. However, a series of internal problems would force Dr. Childs and much of the student congregation to leave the church. A past member named Cindy Johnson would take over the church by legal means in 1996. Dr. Childs says students were no longer encouraged to meet in the church like they used to. It even closed down uh, because the students were so mistreated. So Mount Zion meant the world to the students and the people of the community that went there as long as it was functioning. There are more than 100 people in the Mount Zion Baptist Church Preservation Society committed to bring back a part of history to Athens. In 2013, Luce brought on a lawsuit against Johnson. And this past summer, the church property was granted to the Preservation Society. Our goal, ultimately, is to restore the building to the condition that it was in. And some people might say, well, why do that? It's just an old building and nobody's using it. Well, it's more than just an old building. And unfortunately, in this country, a lot of people don't value their history. But one of our primary goals is to help that community understand that there were a lot of black people here who played a major role in what Athens is and what it has become, uh, and to recognize that that history is rich and worth knowing something about. For The Outlet, this is David Lee. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The Outlet is co-produced and co-hosted this week by me, Beth Greenman, and Connor Keurig. We're edited by Atish Badia, Susan Tebben, and Allison Hunter. Adam Rich is our technical assistant, and Dalton Pritt mixes our show. Our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos. Subscribe to The Outlet on SoundCloud and iTunes, or find us online at woub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at outlet underscore woub. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.